You wanted to see me, Mr. Khan? Just call me Khan, please. Oh, okay. Mr. I mean Khan. Actually, make it Dr. Khan. Oh, are you a doctor? Well, no, I never got my degree, but I do have superior intellect, so it's probably equal to a college degree or whatever. Oh, okay. Honestly, I'm probably like a double doctor. Oh, wow. Okay, so what can I do for you today, double Dr. Khan? No, no, just call me Dr. Khan and that's enough. Got it, Dr. Khan. Look, Teresa, some have told me that you are spreading rumors about me. What? Me? No. No way. Teresa, I, I Teresa, it's okay. I understand your plight. You are jealous of my impressive pectoral muscles and my gargantuan IQ, but I implore you to remain civil and let out your frustrations on the punching bag that I installed in your sleeping quarters. Dr. Khan, I'm not jealous at all. In fact, I was simply telling the other crew members, who by the way never speak at all, ever, that maybe you could cover up your cleavage just a little bit because I... Okay, okay, I get it. You're here to learn the secrets. You want me to train you. Delightful. We will start with a superset and yes, that's a term I coined myself, of wide leg push-ups. We will do 75 of those, and then we will do a burnout set on the decline bench of decline bench presses. So grab that bar, because... No, sir, I, I just think that your wardrobe is distracting and honestly makes you look very stupid. Teresa, look, I can appreciate someone being blunt, but you're kind of asking for a seti eel in your ear. I mean, you do see that, right? I'm sorry, sir, I Doctor. Just... Right. Dr. Khan, I apologize for my harsh comment, but I seriously can't even concentrate on this conversation because, well, I'm frightened that any second now, your nipple's gonna pop out. Well, I'll tell you what. I will consider a scarf if you tell the rest of the crew that you are in absolute awe at my intellect. I mean, I want you to really build up how powerful and smart you think I am, okay? Um, yeah, sure. Thank you. Goodbye. Wait, Teresa, one more thing. Yeah? When I turn this way, do I do I look fat? Bad science. Did the movie get it right? Bad science. Or will we have to fight? Bad, 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 bad science. Hi everybody, welcome to another episode of Bad Science. I'm your host, Ethan Edinburgh, and today we're talking about what most people call the greatest Star Trek film ever made, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and I have two perfect guests to discuss this film. From our second episode, it's our old friend Robert Hurt. He is an astrophysicist at Caltech IPAC. Hey, great to be back. Great to see you again, Robert. How you been? <laughs> it's been a great busy year so far. So Great. Okay, well, I want to dig into your title immediately. And to help <laughs> me do so, I have a, a wonderful comedian and writer that uh, was writing on SNL. And you might know him from Britannic. It's Nick Kocher. Yes, hello. Hello, I, you have a mint in your mouth. I regret the mint immediately <laughs> as I started speaking. I kind of... When did you do that? I didn't it see... It was pure optimism that I thought I could have this in my mouth and it wouldn't affect my speech. It's just right away, that clicking sound with the teeth. I'm also combining it with drinking coffee. So wow. it's sort of a battle for my... <laughs> well, for speaking of battle, we are talking about Star mm-hmm. Trek Two, which I believe you finished uh, watching this morning. Is that correct? Yes. I did not have enough time this week i i couldn't one i couldn't convince any of my friends to watch it with me <laughs> two days before yeah, bastards yeah i i agree you need new friends uh, <laughs> yeah 
Yeah, maybe Robert uh, is gonna, the number one. Well, move. there's only one of them, so I can I can easily swap. <laughs> okay, him so out. your friend didn't want to yeah, watch yeah. this. Yeah. Um, um, well, it is early uh, right now, so I just think. Uh, it is hilarious that you watched this film so early in the morning. Yeah, I woke up at 7 a.m. Mm-hmm. and watched Star Trek II <laughs> The Wrath of Khan. That's how I began this Wednesday. Thursday? Thursday. Thursday. <laughs> yeah. And enjoyed yourself? Had a oh good time? Oh, my God. I had a great time. Great. I also, it's interesting you say that about the reviews because I was mm-hmm. like, I will find myself, I, I am susceptible to peer pressure. So if I see a movie that I like really like and then I hear a lot of people don't like it, I'll be like, mm-hmm. yeah, I didn't like it either. Right, yeah, yeah. And so I me. got worried midway through, oh, did people not like it? Like, is this wonderful, which I think it is, or were the review, were reviews bad? I mean, I think you you were there at the time. I, uh, yeah, I, I, I have this sad realization that I'm probably the only person in the room who was actually alive when this movie came out. But. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, I, at the time, I, I only read briefly about this, but there was like a huge media frenzy about this movie. People well, were, yeah. because the first Star Trek apparently like was over budget and people didn't love it, and then this one, there was like all this like pandemonium about secrets getting out about the movie. People yep. knew that Spock was going to die. And now, they spoilers. Were, uh, well, sorry oh. if you're listening to this, you've probably <laughs> seen the film. If not, go watch it. What are you doing? What are you doing? But uh, but yeah, people were were really they were stealing stuff from the set. I read yeah. like like scripts and and jackets and all sorts of crap. Oh yeah, and the yeah the whole bit about Spock dying right that had gotten out leaked. It was actually leaked apparently by Roddenberry himself because he was not happy with some of the things they were doing in the movie so okay. he was sort of preceding people to be against it and uh, and that's actually one of the reasons they had one of the leading scenes is spot dying in the simulator to diffuse oh. I remember watching it and because I, I went in primed that Spock's gonna die when I was watching this and Same. I'm going in and the very opening scene like you know the Kobayashi Maru test and Spock dies oh that's what they were talking about so it totally <laughs> faked me out right that's a brilliant maneuver. Hit, hit me like a yeah. sledgehammer yeah. every time <laughs> <laughs> what a ridiculous I have so many like already questions off the bat just about like the whole Star Trek universe is very new to me. You were making fun of me before we started recording and rightfully so. <laughs> I know the new Star Trek stuff and even then I'm like I saw it a couple times. I enjoyed it. I liked the the first of the newer renditions a lot and then the uh, what was it? Into Darkness? Into the, Darkness. What your shirt is? Uh, was, was fine for me. I thought it was okay. Uh, but so you're going to have to if I ask uh, you know a bunch of questions about what Star Trek fans already know. Please don't try. You know, don't insult me too much. Uh, but I, I treat I treat Star Trek knowledge the same way I treat astronomy knowledge. Great. You know, if if you don't know it, then there's, then you have to ask. It's, Great, it's, perfect. <laughs> so the so Roddenberry is that his name? Yes, Gene Roddenberry. He's like the Star Trek guy. He's like yeah. the George Lucas to Star Wars. Right. The, the Great Bird of the Galaxy, as he's known. The Great Bird of the Galaxy. <laughs> Did he give himself that nickname, or is that? No, I think fandom kind of gave him that name. And it, it uh, uh, there, there's an apocryphal tale in the seventies. You know, when fandom was really kicking in, that someone actually addressed a letter to the great bird of the galaxy, Hollywood, California, <laughs> and it actually did get to him. Whoa. <gasps> That's where. Why bird? Yeah, I really do not know where that term came from. Oh, okay, <laughs> very interesting. Uh, I, I was aware of it, but I never understood where it yeah. came from. But yeah, I wonder if George Lucas has a similar nickname. I want the, all big directors the, to have nicknames. The like great that. hedgehog of. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow, I feel like Lucas has a a uh, more antagonistic view with his fan base. Er, uh, you know, his fan base definitely has other words for him that maybe is <laughs> right. Yeah, that's totally fair. So, are you? Is it safe to say you're more of a Star Trek guy than a Star Wars guy? 
Oh, yeah. Definitely more of a Star Trek guy than Star Wars. Okay. I love Star Wars, but, uh, you know, I, I, for me, I mean, you know, so I grew up, one of the reasons I think I'm an astronomer now is that I grew up watching Star Trek. And mm-hmm. the sense of awe and wonder that was even in the original series that the universe is filled with really amazing things. Now, of course, you know, the stuff in the show is all not real, but it still acts as an opportunity to inspire you to want to know what really is out there. Sure. Uh, the fact that, you know, the, one of the three main characters of the show was Mr. Spock, who was a scientist. And, you know, what other show has put a scientist like up front and a positive role model. I mean, at that era, especially in the 60s, if you had a scientist in a TV show or movie, they're usually like a mad scientist or a villain or right, or, right science is the enemy. Or a weak geek. Yeah. Yeah. So, Freaking um, nerd. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so it, it really did have a, an optimistic view of the future and where we're going. And, you know, it's that sort of thing you watch as a kid and think, yeah, that's the future I want to live in, mm-hmm. you know. And did we get there? <laughs> okay. <laughs> what I noticed that I loved so much is is how polite everybody is. That yes. was like truly the I was like, this is so wonderful to live in. Yeah, even Khan. I mean, that also tells you something about me is that (laughs) I'm not like into exploring like space. I'm like, I'm into the manners that everybody (laughs) has for everybody. Everyone's calling themselves. They they address them by their names every time. Uh, You just want to be part of a crew that respects each other. Yes. (laughs) So, okay. What about you? Are you more Star Trek guy or Star Wars guy or neither or Um, both? I'm. It's interesting because I love sci-fi. I'm very into sci-fi, but I'm not, I don't really like, I wouldn't, I was never a Trekkie or like a a Star Wars. A Warsy, yeah. (laughs) Sure. Um, I was always more into like just, you know, standalone time travel stuff. Like I was always so curious about that. But I I do, I mean, I love all of the movies. Like I don't. Yeah. I'm not not a fan of them, but I haven't. Just because I I know there's like a rivalry. Uh, out there, so I don't know. I was asking. Yeah, no, I don't. I mean, I I am Switzerland. Uh, yeah, fan of both yeah. teams. But I I think like when I was younger, I think I would have really liked uh, Star Trek mm. uh, as a child, but I didn't watch it because the uniforms, the the uh, Captain Picard era uniforms, made me uncomfortable because they were too tight. <laughs> What's on wrong everybody. with spandex? That's, I that's just the fabric like, of the future. As a yeah. child, was just like this. This, this show is too sexy for me. <laughs> I recognize that, and I'm out. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you, it's it's tough cosplaying because you, yeah. you put it on, and you're thinking, okay, where does the wallet go? Unforgiving. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I want to get into your, your title, your new title. I don't know how new this is, but I had not heard it before, uh, which is an astrophysicist. Yes. So um, my my job at, uh, at IPAC at Caltech, right, is... Uh, now science communications and particularly the visual side of it. So mm. I, uh, a lot of what I do is take uh, you know, data from telescopes, from NASA missions primarily, uh, like a Spitzer Space Telescope or New Star, and turn those into the imagery that we put out to sort of share what the universe looks like, to, to uh, take, take light from all over the spectrum and all the different telescopes and sort of render that into cool pictures that we can look at and that actually captures <laughs> some of the science, but also to do animations and graphics and things that are all centered around sort of explaining science. So cool. My, my colleague Frank Summers at Space Telescope, the Hubble people, actually coined the term astrophysicist and offered it to his peers in the community who do similar things. So. That's a cool name. <laughs> I'm glad that they did that. So um, I'm all into the imagery of science as much as the mathematics of science. Got you. Okay. Well, then this movie must have been a, 
a kick in your butt in a good way because there was like some pretty cool CGI. Uh, well, there's some, there's for, some love for and 82. hate. There's but, a, uh, love and hate in it, but yeah. Okay, well, let's oh, get no, into it. I love the movie, but you know, science <laughs> is often not done well in, in film for reasons sure. we understand. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and uh, just to make sure that we are all up to date, IPAC still doesn't stand for anything or it mean anything? It still doesn't stand for anything. It's just a science and data center for astrophysics and planetary science at Caltech. <laughs> <laughs> Nick's looking at me like, And that would be hell? a terrible acronym if we made that one. <laughs> yeah. <into> one so. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll uh, jot that out later. Um, okay, so I want to start out. I want to get into the film uh, big time because this was not what I expected at all getting into this movie. I don't know why exactly, but it was just a lot more. You were talking about uh, the pacing of old films, mm-hmm. which I always really appreciate. I like a slower pace to mm-hmm. things. And this film definitely had that, but in kind of a cool way. It was like suspenseful dialogue, and especially uh, Khan's uh, <laughs> character. Oh. What's his name? Montalban? Ricardo Montalban. Ricardo Montalban. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, I don't know, as a villain was so great oh, and so yeah. fun to watch. Just <laughs> chewing on those words. <laughs> oh, he, yeah. oh, really man. taking his sweet, sweet yeah. time, uh, which I, I loved. Hurt yeah. you. I wish to go on hurting you. No, oh, what is not to love about this? Yeah, exactly. At the end, when he goes from the heart of hell, I stab at thee. I was like, I'm gonna, I'm going to be using this in my life. Yeah, it's uh, that was Moby Dick uh, quotes. I had to research. That. Oh, really? Yeah, because I was like, what oh, is he? Is he just on... making up poetry? Is that his character? When, yeah, when but... they first get to the uh, wreckage at the beginning, it actually pans past the books. And oh, Moby right. Dick is one of the books on the. Shelf. So, so it's already establishing, you know, he's a he's a, only a had student of the classics, student of the classics, but also that's all he that's all he's got. Yeah. So he yeah. only has like nine books to read. Well, you mm-hmm. know, from the original Star Trek, they established that that he and his people were actually uh, uh, genetically engineered Superman from the 1990s. It was actually they. Uh, oh we, right, we, he see, says 96. We, we quietly managed to make it through the eugenics wars. I'm not sure. I guess you know maybe that was in the dark media. We never actually heard about it, but yeah. that's when the genetically engineered Superman tried to take over the world and right. they were like cast down. And some of them escaped into space in a sleeper ship, just to be discovered, you know, hundreds okay. years later by Kirk. And so, but yeah, he's he's actually a man of our times. But genetically superior, right? And he's lived. He's very old. He's hundreds of years old. Yeah, but yeah. mostly was just you know in suspended animation until Kirk mm. had found him yes. fifteen years before this movie. So that was sort of his backstory. They only they don't really touch on. They assume either you knew it and they didn't need to say it, yeah. or it wasn't actually that important. Yes, because the story would go on. It wasn't that important, but I was confused about it, yeah. and I didn't really understand. Was it from? So it was from an episode. He was. Yeah. He appeared in an episode. Yes. yes. Space was, Seed. Space Seed. I right. think. Right. Okay. And was Ricardo Montalban the, the yes the, yes he the was guy who played him yeah he said yeah. that he had to rewatch that episode like four times <laughs> to get like into the character again yeah. uh, but but okay so explain this to me and uh, again just on the pacing of this movie which was slow there was a part that I thought was way too slow which was the credits did either of you guys notice how the credits yeah. at the beginning there was nothing happening it's just a, like a picture basically of space and then just each credit yeah. one by one in blue writing it took three minutes that that was more of the style though in the in the seventies yeah. and okay. the eighties that they actually front loaded most of the credits. Now sometimes you would overlay it on imagery and something, and, but a lot of movies, if you go back, it's kind of it it's was, like that. It was yeah. Like that, people are just used to like okay, then this guy. But like, hey, just just <laughs> chill to that awesome James Horner score. Yeah, that's yeah. true. With it, so great. Score. I do like that that move. Yeah, that was cool. Okay, so wait, explain this to me very quickly because I really don't understand. Khan 
like he was upset at Kirk because he felt like Kirk like banished him or like exiled him or something like that. Yeah. Right. And then Kirk was like he didn't really like you said they kind of like glazed over it. Yeah. In the original story, they basically discover the sleeper ship. They wake these people up and they discover they are these genetic super people from. Uh, so they're from all the genetic super people. Yeah, it was a whole ship full of them. It's they not were all, just Khan. Then. Not just Khan. Yeah, the yeah. whole ship. And they tried to take over the Enterprise because they're basically well, let's just take over the Federation now because we're better than all these people. Right. And they nearly kill Kirk, and they they uh, uh, he actually. She turns one of Kirk's crew, you know, guest star against the, the crew for a bit. And rather than just throw them in prison, Kirk leaves them on what is at that point a, a nice but rugged world and said, you know, go live your lives. You know, what, okay. what wonderful things will you make? And so the the affecta- the affectation for this movie was that beautiful world they left them on became wrecked like Two years later, but what? no one knew because no one went back. No and one checked were, on it. No one checked on yeah. it. And then they were struggling to survive, and most of the people died out. The, uh, his wife from the. Uh, the so the why is he Khan fell in love with. so special? He is special because he is supposed to be just stronger, smarter, faster. You know, think think kind of superhero. Okay, He's so there's like engineered to be they're all better. genetically uh, advanced, and Khan is like super genetic. Yeah, he's advanced. like he's the leader of them all. He's better than the best. Got so. it. It's funny because the only evidence we see of that is him lifting that one guy <laughs> yeah. up and then it's like that's all I'll show you but yeah. I'm got well, he reminds trust you. that it's good yeah, yeah he, he reminds you remind how you. smart he is and it is repeatedly. a good like uh, yeah that's true <laughs> the, I have a question when they first appeared on the, the TV show were they dressed like the age of Aquarius as they currently are in this yes. <laughs> movie good like, question they had kind of actually they had very skimpy uh, uh, meshy like sleep mm, uh-huh. suits on when they first found them because so, yeah. I would love to see the movie then of the transition from them from that to the sort of like kind of hippie look that yeah. they sort of have like this very you know well, planet look. I mean, one of the the science problems with this movie, frankly, is actually in this whole like transition thing, right? Mm. Because they actually tell you that they were they were left on SETI Alpha Six. And wait, wait, which way did it? Was, was it one is SETI they, Alpha they were left on Alpha Five, and then SETI Alpha Six blew up, and oh. it knocked SETI Alpha Five off to where the SETI Alpha Six had been. And, mm. and so here's the deal: like, if if a planet blew up, we didn't believe me. Planets just don't typically blow up. There's, <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> planets good to are know. very good, stable. Good. They're nice and big. Gravity holds them together, and to blow a planet up, you have got to hit it really hard with something really big. Yeah, but you know, if you did that. They also don't blow up neatly, right? That would scatter crap all over the system. There would be dust and debris. And even, you know, 15 <laughs> years, astronomically speaking, is like nothing, you know. So if something traumatic had happened to a planet in that system, yeah. man, they would have flown in. You know, poor Chekhov would have gone like, whoa, what happened here? Right, right. Okay. <laughs> you know, they would, there would probably be meteors falling on the, the other world that they were studying. So, you know, it's like it was one of those plot devices. But, yeah, that that, that wouldn't happen like that. You'd, yeah. And you'd have to also engineer what would cause them to push the planet into a different orbit and frankly why wouldn't they notice they were missing a planet because they, they did have a <laughs> yeah. record of the system right and one of the planets is missing that that's kind of sloppy on the science side that they didn't like notice like, yeah, oh, yeah i'm always alarmed in some of these really futuristic films how like 
they don't they don't tell you about stuff immediately. Like the computer systems, for some reason, in a lot of these movies, like they basically tell you at the last second or when it's too late already. Like you're, that's a perfect example. Like why wouldn't if something happens to a planet, you would think, oh, something goes off on a computer and they let you know, you know, maybe we can't land there, whatever. Star, Star Trek computers are notoriously passive aggressive. Like, <laughs> great. Oh yeah, Captain Picard hasn't been on the ship for two days. Oh, but yeah. you, you didn't ask. <laughs> right. Exactly. There's a part also where they're getting like attacked. From the ship that's not the, the Khan like takes over this ship. What's the it Reliant? The Reliant. Yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, I can rely on you. Sorry. And oh, no, uh, I'm, I'm done. I'll see you later, Nick. I'll just talk to Robert the rest of the time. Uh, no. So they they're shooting at him, and they're not. They're the the communications are off. Right, and and something happens where oh they're like not sure if they should put the shields up or not, and Khan's like yeah they won't put their shields up because we're all friends right in the Federation, yeah. but don't tell, don't say anything, and then they get locked onto, and immediately when that happens, Captain Kirk says put the shields up, and then yeah. they get hit anyway. <laughs> I would, it was she was uh, Mister Z- uh, the Lieutenant the woman Savik. Savick, yes. yes. Uh, Kirstie Alley? Kirstie Alley. Oh, my Kirstie God, Alley. that is who that was. That's right, yes, I yes. saw her name in the credits, <laughs> and then I forgot, and then, yeah, there's, there you go. That's my question. No. Um, <laughs> she was great. Yeah. Uh, no, she says she's, like, about to remind him of some regulation, and he and they're like, shut up. And then afterwards, he's like, keep reminding me of regulations. And I was like, was that regulation? Was she going to be like, hey, let's put our shields up? Was <laughs> yeah. that like presumably yeah. what she was probably? <laughs> you might actually cite this as an early example of the dangers of mansplaining. Yeah, mm. you know, maybe you should just listen. Yeah, that's a good lesson. Also, it's it's you should profile. <laughs> yes. They should have just been like, let's just put like they don't put their shields up because they don't want to be rude. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, just it is a polite, it's yeah. a polite universe. It's polite yeah. federation. That's but, true. I mean, you know, regulations are there for a reason. Yeah. yeah. But we can't sacrifice the politeness or yeah. I am. I was going to say, I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you would hate that. If yeah. they put your shields up, we can't trust anybody. Yeah. It's like, well, what happened to the crew? What happened to the manners? Well, I'm the same way. I think I would sooner be murdered than <laughs> insult a threatening looking person by running away. <laughs> um, okay, I have a question. Just before I forget, if we do want to get into, well, let's say Nick and I aren't familiar with old Star Trek stuff, mm-hmm. the show, whatever. Hypothetically. The, hypothetically in some crazy universe. Yeah. Wh- how should we, what's our entry point? Like, obviously we're into this film. Mm-hmm. We watched it. We enjoyed it, I think, right? Yeah. Speak for Loved both it. of us. Loved, Loved it. it. Do we get into the original 60s uh, Shatner Star Trek? Do we go, like you were saying, uh, Picard? Picard. Picard? Bacardi? Picard? <laughs> Do we go Bacardi? Yeah. Uh, or what's the what's your favorite, I guess? Oh, man, there's, it's, it, that's such a hard question. You know, the funny thing is, everyone's Star Trek, everyone's personal Star Trek, often is the one that was on when they were a kid or mm. when they started watching, right? So, mm. you know, everyone has their own personal Star Trek. And there have been okay. so many. Voyager, Deep Space Nine, and Next right. Generation, Enterprise, now Discovery. I was overwhelmed. I looked it up, and honestly, I stopped yeah. right away because I said, there's no way I'm going to get into all this. There's so many. You know, if if, it, if you're really just starting fresh, Discovery might be a great entry point because Discovery. that's like the Star Trek for now. It's being mm. written now. Oh, it's being yes, produced yes. now. It's, it's actually a prequel to the original series. Oh. And they're actually pulling some characters from the original series that were only featured in an episode or two, but kind of expanding out their world. We, and we're actually meeting very young Spock. Spock before he was on the Enterprise under Kirk. Okay. But uh, serving with Captain Pike. So, you know, there's some nice stuff in there. But, you know, if you, were, if you wanted to go back and sample, the, say, the original series, maybe... 
I, I, I hesitate for, for, for young modern audiences to say, go and just binge it all. But you might start with just a few of the, the best rated fan favorites and just at least get a feeling for it. There's okay. uh, uh, episodes like the Corbomite Maneuver uh, is excellent, really in, embodies the high ideals of Star Trek of, mm. of, you know, we do things because they're right, not because they're convenient or safe. It's a, it's a beautiful episode. The original Space Seed, obviously, is a good thing to go back mm. and watch now. So you see you okay. know, how the, where this came from, how it was set up. Great. Um, uh, the, uh, for a very silly, fun episode, there's always the trouble with Tribbles, the time they went off into comedy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, that sounds fun. Uh, the Doomsday Machine, another classic favorite of uh, you know, coping with a, uh, an unstoppable foe that threatens to destroy the, the galaxy. It's, uh, and these are all uh, 60s these are, these are all the era. 60s uh, era. Okay. And then, then once you've watched a few, but you've got to watch a few to, to earn this one, then there is the <laughs> other, the, the absolute classic City on the Edge of Forever, oh. uh, which is Harlan Ellison's one uh, uh, foray into Star Trek, which was the, uh, uh, the script that almost wasn't produced because he had, he was tearing apart the Federation a little too much. So it got rewritten. Ellison hated it the way it came on screen, but everyone else thinks it's the best episode that was ever done on the original series. So. Wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. Well, speaking of the original series, I do want to play a quick game here with you guys, which I'm calling Shooting the Shat. It's a game, but not really. Time to play Shooting the Shat. And it's about Shatner. Is that why William Shatner's in the corner tied up blindfolded right now? Yeah. Okay. I, I, I told you not to mention it. Okay. Oh, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> be be I mean, nice to him. We can edit that out, I guess. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah well, he wanted to be a guest really bad, and I said, no, mm-hmm. Nick's coming in. <laughs> Thank you. And so I tied up that old, old man. And now we're going to shoot him. <laughs> <laughs> now we're going to shoot that mother. Yeah. All right. So I just have like basic questions about William Shatner. Okay. Uh, if you guys know, then great. If not, also great. Are we competing against each other? Or yes, is this everything weird? in the show okay, is a competition. Cool. I am uh. going to lose. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, okay, take a guess here. When was Shatner born? <laughs> I mean, take a take a shot. Shooting the shit. Shooting the shot. I would say 1952. Okay, 52. I'm going to say closer to like 19. 19- 43. Okay. Uh, closer, but not far enough. March 26th. No, March 22nd, 1931. Ah. Oh, my gosh. 31. I was way off. Yeah. I'm sure uh, you feel worse about him being tied up. What's his height? His height? Yes. Oh, man. Some people I've got to guess shorter because okay. everyone is always shorter. <laughs> sure. Than you think. So I'm going to go five... Nine. Okay. You know, I have been right next to the man and probably I cannot remember now. I'll say 5'11". It's right in the middle between you guys. 5'10". No points. No points for anybody on that. All right. So he's my height. That's why I couldn't remember. Uh Also, since we're shooting the shat here, when did you meet the shat? Well, I mean, like, you know, at conventions, you know, over the years, it's like autograph lines and things, you know, it's how many conventions you've been to. Oh, uh, more than I can count. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So what, you like stand in line, he signs something, you ask him I, a I question. Mean, I actually have never gotten Chandler's autograph, but you know, oh. it's like, you know, you, there are times that he's you know, around. He's around, you know, he sort of passed by. He's like, oh, okay. William what about uh, Nimoy? 
Oh, yeah, yeah. Nimoy, uh, uh, I saw him. I guess the last time I saw him was a couple years before he died. He did a uh, uh, presentation at Cal State Long Beach, and he was just sort of talking about his life, his photography, his wow. his, his uh, time as Spock, his uh, his writings. You know, it was just sort of that, yeah. this is my life kind of thing. He wasn't thrilled with uh, the whole thing around this time of the... Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Yeah, he you know he went through phases. He you know you think about it, he was an actor who was in this sh- had this gig for three years, but then it kept following him around, mm-hmm. and you know wow. he was off trying to do other things, and people would kept saying calling him Spock, and so he, ha- he certainly had a period where he just wanted to distance himself from the role, right? And that was actually apparently one of the lures for Star Trek II. It's like, well, we'll give you a great death scene, right? But at some point in there, he actually started to think, you know, maybe I'm looking at this wrong. And he actually turned around and he actually started really embracing the role. And, oh, it, and yeah. he, you know, he wrote a book called I Am Not Spock in the 70s and then years later wrote a book that called I Am Spock. <laughs> wow. I hope these books are so short. I mean, <laughs> just a sentence long each. <laughs> it's a kid's book. Well, okay. <laughs> I, I think they had poetry, you know, things yeah. like that. It's, okay. But, uh, so so in the other Star Trek 3, 4, however many they were, 5, 6? Uh, there were 6 with the original cast and mm. then some of them appeared in Star Trek Generations which was the seventh movie but that was the first of the next generation movies and Nimoy was in all these films Nimoy was in through Star Trek 6 but he wasn't in Star Trek 7 uh, the Star Trek Generations but then you? he appeared again he reprised his role as Spock for Star Trek Next Generation oh okay they actually had him on a uh, like a two-parter where he was uh, he was offering the olive branch to um, to Romulus try to oh. the Romulans and the Vulcans were supposed to be uh, related people and so he was trying to help bring the two peoples back together okay interesting and then he then reprised that role in jj abrams star trek 2009 right yeah. where the that's the one i like got shifted and yeah i dug up. that uh so uh can i ask a spoiler here it's like he comes back to life then because he dies at the end of his movie yeah so what basically happened is yeah. the director right uh, uh he really wanted to tell a story about life and death and let's kill a beloved character but it the fans didn't want him to die. Spock is mythological to us, right? And the movie actually tested very badly when they showed it because it was such a downer and he's just dead. (laughs) And Star Trek is about hope and and so uh, uh, over Nicholas Meyer's objections, they actually added in the final scene of the movie which is going down to that Genesis planet and then eventually seeing Spock's coffin coffin torpedo casing, like soft landing on the surface. Yeah. By the way, that's the way to go, am I right? Torpedo coffin. Oh yeah, torpedo coffin. Hell yeah. Awesome. Yeah. But so we see it on this planet and And then and then adding a little bit of dialogue of, of you know Genesis's life from lifelessness, then I have to return to this place. So they were actually already thinking: Is there a way that we can mm-hmm. write ourselves out of this because it's sci-fi? Okay, that was not Nicholas Meyer's vision, but it tested way better when they screened it apparently to to fans. Right, and then it inadvertently became the first episode of a trilogy of films mm. because then the, the Star Trek Three was the search for Spock. Where they oh. go back to Genesis and they find that that because of the Genesis wave it like rejuvenated him and uh-huh. and then sure. and then but he doesn't have his brains because his brains were left in in McCoy and <sighs> that was that last remember he did a mind meld with McCoy at the end oh and that was he transferred cool. basically his his they, the Vulcans call <laughs> they it don't their Katra. address that in this movie though, no no right? no no so were they setting it up then they had an idea let's leave something that we can play on but they didn't oh. actually know they they had not envisioned oh. this. That's as a trilogy. Man, that's so good. But the fans, you know, <laughs> did not want Spock to die. And yeah. apparently at some point in the game, Nimoy even indicated, you know, I would be okay returning to the role after all. 
you know, because originally right. they were just going to give him an out so he didn't have to yeah. deal with it. But and he's like, "Whoa, you're going to keep paying me?" Hey, and I've so, got an idea for a book. You know, it's, it's the classic. I am Spock. <laughs> you know, this is maybe the first example of lost style writing. You know, okay, let's just write something weird, and hopefully next year the new writer room will figure out what this was and come up with a <laughs> yeah. way of yeah. making this. Into yeah, because that was a super. I mean, it wasn't as mysterious because I've seen like the newer ones, but yeah. that mind meld part. I was thinking like they never. Maybe this is just something for fans because they already knew it. But yeah, you're yeah. saying they didn't know Vulcan. Well, Vulcans, you know, we've known that you know they have this ability to mind meld oh, so and share know. thoughts and things. So, so yeah, that was okay. very like, oh, he's doing something there. But it could, maybe it been just as much of a planting a memory of a goodbye or something. But <laughs> we did not know about this idea of of the Vulcan soul, the Katra, that was then explored. That's in the next so movie. convenient. I thought and, what it yeah, was, to was like. I was like, oh, this, m- <laughs> this is so, I mean, it's hilarious that I fully confidently assumed this. But I, he, like, does the, the Vulcan g- grip? Uh, what would Mind melt. Knockout. Oh, is that, but that's what it's called when he, like, knocks them Oh, oh the, the, the Vulcan nerve pinch. The nerve pinch, yes. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, he does the, Vulcan the nerve pinch. pinch. Um, and knocks him out. And then when he does remember, I was like, oh, that must be because... The nerve pinch like makes you really groggy, and when you wake up, you don't really remember what's happened the past couple hours. And they were like, "This is a little fix." Oh, so right. That McCoy's going to come back and he's going to know exactly what's going on. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds nice too. And yeah. and it's so much worse <laughs> than, than what it is. It's so much. Yeah, it's so yeah. Uh, cool to store your brain yeah. or your yeah. memory or Real your quick, soul or something yeah. into Put my brain else. in here. And, and, and of course, the irony in, in Star Trek the uh, the original Trek was really about the the sort of the trinity of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, you know, you, uh, the logos, pathos, ethos, you know, mm. Spock is the logos, the logic. Right. Uh, uh, McCoy is the pathos, the passion, the emotion. Sure. And, and and Kirk is, you know, the, the hand that balances the, uh, right. and it's always Kirk trying to balance McCoy's emotional side and uh, Spock's logical side and then synthesizing to the right answer. But as a result, it, it, McCoy and Spock were always like sniping each other. They were, they were yeah, always yeah, arguing. Yeah. They always disagreed on everything. And <laughs> and so the irony of that close moment that of all the people to receive Spock is the person who's most different from him in all ways. That's, yes. But again, yeah. as much as they would hate it, they, you know, they were the best friends that would never admit they liked each other kind of Right, pair, right. So. That makes sense. I don't want to talk about science. I want to talk about this. <laughs> I want to talk about the writing and the, like, spiritual oh. underlay. <laughs> well, let's characters. talk about some science, too, yeah. though, because this Yeah, is... we got both. We got okay. both. Okay. <laughs> We have time for if both. You trust insist. Me. I mean, I, I will sit here and talk Star Trek with yeah. you for, for, oh for my God. four hours, they and did. then I'll, I'll talk astronomy for four more hours. So it's uh, <laughs> great. Well, we have a very hours. long. Cool. Well, I'm here for eight. So great. <laughs> uh, yeah, they did definitely knock on that. Uh, like that, Spock is logical a lot in this film. I felt like he even said it himself, right, a few yeah. times. Um, so to really to hammer it home. Okay. Let's let's shoot the chat a little bit more, and then we'll get out oh, of this. Oh yeah. So he's. I think you need to loosen the gag. He's. I think he's. No, Robert. He's fine. You're being too McCoy. Uh, have you guys <laughs> oh, seen? Oh my god! I'm leaving again. That really does. <laughs> I'm sorry. Have you seen? Damn it, uh, Ethan! I'm an astronomer, not a doctor. <laughs> That's really funny to Star Trek fans. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no, I got that one uh, because of the 2009 Star Trek, ah, which I really yeah. love. <laughs> so the there's a video from some sort of science fiction convention where Shat covers Rocket Man. Have you seen this video? Oh god. <laughs> I did, yes, I have. I didn't realize okay. it was from a convention. I, or some sort I of awards. It was an award show. It was like it was a an science fiction yeah. awards that I don't know if we Well, have. he actually he released an album of right. music and then this was sort of a music video of one of the things that he had done on the album. Okay. Yeah. It was I watched it last night. 
and I had never seen it before. <laughs> and it absolutely floored me. And so if you haven't seen this, I'm begging oh, it you. It is wild. It is a wild it. bit of film. I couldn't oh, yeah. believe that it was even on television at any point in history. Uh, but he, yeah, it's basically spoken word, uh, but it's uh, but it's Rocket Man. It is both. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's me- the music of Rocket Man yeah. played on like a weird synth or something. And then he's just speaking, speaking it words, as yeah. if he's a uh, Rocket Man. Okay. How many times was the Shat married? Three. Okay. <laughs> You're like searching. I'm going to just do prices right here and go four. <laughs> yes, four is correct. Hey. Oh, prices right is good. How much did he sell his kidney stone for? Ooh. What? Shatner sold his kidney stone, uh, and I'm asking how much it sold for. How much it sold for, I would guess. I mean, a kidney stone. Yep. That is a horrifying thing to purchase and then I oh, but fans will display. buy anything just yeah. to have something yeah. to connect them. So that's, uh, I would guess, $10,000. Okay. I'll say 7000 $25,000, oh, wow. guys. Uh, he said that the twenty-five grand and an additional twenty grand raised from the cast and crew of Boston Legal paid for uh, the building of a house by Habitat for Humanity. So I thought oh. that was really nice. Oh. Didn't just like buy a Corvette or something with this kidney stone uh, money. Okay, last one. In 2018, Shatner partnered with PETA to ask for uh, Norwegian cruise lines to stop offering what? I know. Dolphin meat. <laughs> oh, okay. Gelatins derived from horses. <laughs> uh, well, he's <laughs> not a bad guess. Uh, yeah, but pretty much what you said, Nick. The, the, the swim with dolphins experience, oh. which oh. I was so happy to read about. We've talked about it a few times on the show with different uh, environmentalists who always say the same thing, which is don't swim with dolphins. They don't like it. Mm-hmm. Oh. They like swimming near boats. They think it's fun, but they don't want to swim with you. Mm. So stop. Shatner knows. Well, you've 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 out Shatnered me. Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. Nick. That's a huge well, accomplishment. I I, I, yeah. I nod my head in appreciation. <laughs> yes. All right, we're gonna take a quick break, and we'll be right back. The break is over. Here we go back to the show about science. Um. Okay. So there's a bunch of stuff. I don't even know which stuff to ask you about because some of it seems so random to me. But okay, at one point, I think Spock or somebody says, "Oh no, no, it's the." helper of the Genesis crew like the kid his son Shatner's mm-hmm. son I don't know his name David David Marcus <laughs> David oh. Marcus of course you know his full name uh, he says played by Scient- Merritt Buttrick who oh yeah who's that guy uh, uh, an actor I just an actor he oh. uh, actually he some years later actually died of HIV AIDS oh damn uh, oh. And, but he actually ha- appeared again in Star Trek and Next Generation mm-hmm. in an episode that was very thematically um Examining the idea of people who are are made dependent on drugs that are made inaccessible to them because of co- pricing structures, and you know, it was a very interesting opportunity for him before wow. he died. He was able to actually do something that hit on things like drug availability in a sci-fi context, which wow. is That's one of the awesome. things sci-fi can do at its best is take something you know uh, an issue in our world and yeah. defang it by changing a little bit but making you think about the process. So he wasn't in the other movie three, four, five? Uh, well yeah he was in Star Trek. Oh yeah, he, okay he, good. He reprised his say. role in, in, in the son. next Star Trek. Yeah he's his son. But okay. It seems important. Okay so he said well, at some but... point scientists have always been pawns for the military. This quote I found uh, maybe relevant and I wanted to get your take on it. Do you guys talk about that? Do you feel like that happens? 
I, I wouldn't phrase it exactly that way. I think it, it really more points to the idea that any technology – technology is not intrinsically good or evil. And this is actually a thing that is, a thing that is stated in the movie directly, right? Mm-hmm. A technology is just an ability, a power. Mm-hmm. How it is used, that – defines whether it is achieving good or evil in the world. Gotcha. And the, there has been an ongoing discussion, you know, for, for, for generations, right, that should we learn things that are – that could be dangerous, you know, right. the uh, – uh, uh, sh- you know, should – should we have ever invented a nuclear bomb? Should we have ever figured out how to do nuclear energy? Mm-hmm. But the problem is because the idea is like, well, if we do something, say we invent a nuclear bomb, well, it, it can it can kill billions of people. But on the other hand, if you don't do it, someone else will. Because knowledge is out there to be gained. It's, it's right. all there to be learned. Right. And the idea that, oh, we just selectively choose not to learn something mm-hmm. doesn't mean no one was ever going to learn it because someone else could just as easily sit and figure it out. Yeah. So it's almost a question of it's – for me, it's always a question of – Willful ignorance really doesn't actually mean you're protecting the world from knowledge. All it means is someone else is going to come up with it later. Right. Right. The the universe is there to be discovered, and it doesn't really care who discovers it or how many times it is discovered and rediscovered. Yeah. It's – I think it's better to do – to know as much as we can and get ahead of it as much as we can Mm -hmm. so we can actually ask the the right ethical and intellectual questions. You know, uh, genetic engineering – you know, I mean, there's a story right now of um, a doctor in China who has uh, uh, had children who were genetically engineered to be immune to HIV. Wow. Uh, but against all ethical concerns on, you know, there's so much we don't know about the uh, the long-term impacts of uh, genetic engineering. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that if we don't know anything about it, it will never happen. It just mm-hmm. means, right, it, 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 if we didn't have a mechanism to understand what he's doing, we wouldn't even it wouldn't be enough of an issue to understand what is occurring. Right. So I'd rather all of this happen as much in the light as it can mm-hmm. and that we can continue to have these discussions. Yeah. You know, sure, the military may take things and find ways to kill people with it. Right. It just uh, seems like they get so much. Uh, <laughs> it, oh, so genetic engineering is happening and we oh. are uh, basically step one. Where step ten is Khan is literally Khan, <laughs> yeah, a, a genetically yeah. engineered supervillain, <laughs> right, right, yeah, and uh, I mean, it's, but it's just like we just gotta step, stop at like step seven, right? <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah. Know when it's enough. <laughs> no when it's enough, or uh, and frankly, know when is there a point at which that we might be at a point stage where we could do something helpful? You know, if if you can eliminate genetic diseases, this isn't necessarily a bad goal, yeah, but. You don't want to say in the process of eliminating a disease, create something else that is going to have a more calamitous effect on on the next generation of children born after that, right? Mm-hmm. It's all about understanding as, as much as we can. Um, I mean, there's a lot of uproar over genetically modified organisms and GMO foods, and, and a lot of the objection is as much hype as it, it, it – so much of it is not very well informed right? in, in the sense of – think about – Every food that you eat has been genetically engineered. Now, it may have been genetically engineered through selective breeding, mm-hmm. which has resulted in genes being in it that weren't in it before or expressed at different levels. There are other shortcuts you can take to then just insert genes in. But in some sense, just the idea of genetically modifying something is not intrinsically evil or bad or unhealthy or unnutritious. But mm-hmm. you get to a point where some people just think 
any manipulation is bad. Like there's like a black and white, like, well, if you just do it through selective breeding, then it is perfectly good. But if you do anything through chemistry, then it is automatically poisonous and evil and bad. And that's just as naive mm-hmm. as, as saying that all things that are natural are good because, you know, I'm happy to serve up a, a, a nice cup of hemlock for someone who says organic is absolutely healthy in all ways. Yeah. Beautiful organic hemlock. It will kill you. You know, yeah. <laughs> organic, you know, natural isn't healthy. Nat- natural can kill you. It can make you healthy. It can do everything in between. Mm-hmm. And it's not a question of deciding these kind of binary on and offs. So for me, it's more a question of really understanding is do we understand something well enough to know how to do something technologically without creating the bad effects yeah or are are the technologies too immature right those are where the question should be not just if it was science it's automatically wrong right. or it's automatically right yeah mm-hmm. yeah that makes sense um i feel like stem cell wow i stepped way out of my purview as as no. astronomer there but you know this is uh, <laughs> no, it was great i've, I've yeah. just to get to the quote uh things that are natural are not healthy i thought was great <laughs> that, that will really change a lot of lives um yeah i was i was uh speaking with someone the other day about just like stem cell research funding and like military funding and how just historically it seems like the military is always this huge priority and we got to make the fastest stealthiest jets but when it comes to these you know like you're saying like uh, advancements that could be a little dicey socially or politically or whatever it's like way less than what mm-hmm. is required yeah so but you know there are benefits from uh side benefits from military technologies that actually benefit us in in very general ways for instance torpedo you know, coffins the, the, <laughs> torpedo coffins for one that's that's how i want to go uh but i the hubble space telescope was essentially a military spy satellite that oh. was wasn't being used the mirror from it was for a spy satellite that that wasn't being used and it was given to nasa to wow. exploit as a telescope uh this the reason the Hubble fit very neatly into the shuttle bay because the space shuttle was designed to carry spy sats up of of that size. Gotcha. Um, in fact, one of the NASA's next big missions, the uh, uh, the W first mission, was was a is, a is a telescope that that you know it came from other military technology that isn't being used that was then offered like, okay, we, we built this, but we're not going to use it. Can we use it for science? Cool. Okay. So, you know, there are uh, infrared uh, detectors, right? Uh, one of my uh, specializations is infrared astronomy, where we look at the universe at, you know, longer wavelengths of light than, than our eyes can see. Yeah. Um, developing detectors that work super, super well in the infrared is very expensive and very slow, very laborious process. Mm-hmm. turns out the military is interested in that too, because, you know, rockets are hot, you know, and, and, some of the technologies that went into developing detectors to help, you know, find missile launches also can be put into telescopes to study the dust clouds that lead to the formation of stars and planets. So, you gotcha. know, it, 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 it works both directions. OK, that was another thing I wanted to ask you about, by the way, was the big nebula scene mm-hmm. there, which looked beautiful. Uh, so do you, do you think that was a, a, a good representation of, of nebulas of, in space? Uh, it's some sort of space fog that makes <laughs> ships unable to see each other, <laughs> right. except when except visually. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. And their yeah. shields have to go down, apparently, right? Yeah. Apparently. Didn't one shield have to go down? I looked at uh, nebula images, and I think it's like the most beautiful space photography that we have probably yeah I've, they look incredible i mean when you when you think astronomy the almost certainly the first thing you think of is if it's not mars it is nebulas and mm-hmm. you know hubble has certainly released many i i've spent a lot of my career making uh, uh releasing images of nebula from other parts of the 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 spectrum from infrared nebulas from the spitzer space telescope and you know they're they're stunningly beautiful but they're also 
Hollywood again never really understands nebulas. They never understand uh-huh. scales because you know they need something dramatic and small. And uh, Hollywood makes things very very small. That right. you know, and and I, so an actual nebula, like when you just virtually any picture you've seen, is something that is light years across. These things are mm. are are vastly bigger than the distance between the sun and Alpha Centauri and the next star after that, right? In, if you look at something like the Orion Nebula, this is a place where stars are formed. And not just individual stars, but like you know, hundreds of stars all through this region. So, Jesus. you know, the distances involved there are actually, you know, really vast. But, you know, in, in Star Trek or in most sci-fi, nebulas are always that thing down the street. You know, it's like, oh, and we'll just fly there without warp drive and we'll get there in a minute. You know, mm-hmm. when the reality is, you know, if you didn't have warp drive, it would take you hundreds of thousands of years to cross a nebula. <laughs> you know, because these things are are big. It, you know, it takes light uh, uh, dozens or, or hundreds of years to across from one end of a nebula to the other. But... But when they're done in sense? Hollywood, they're, it's like a storm cloud, you know. And, right, and, right. Oh, like the, uh, another thing in the Matara Nebula, you know, there's lightning going off, you know, and like rumbling and sound, right? You know, yeah. there's, and there's no sound in space because, <laughs> you know, it's there isn't enough material out there. It's um, Nebulas themselves are also very, very um, sparse. I think maybe the two, the two of the most amazing things to people about space are that, one, space isn't empty, right? People think of space as like, completely devoid of content like it's a complete vacuum but in fact there's like nothing out there that doesn't have a little bit of something in it there there's mm. photons of light passing through it there are a few molecules of, of hydrogen or, or, or carbon or something it, it's never completely empty but then the other side of it is space is almost never very full either because when you think of a nebula, you would think, oh, it's a big, thick gas cloud. You know, when the when the Enterprise hits it, you know, everyone lurches forward a little bit. There's a boom, uh-huh. you know, because it's like, oh, and like we ran into a pillow and you have to like <laughs> plow through it. But in uh, in space, right, when you look at these beautiful, incredible, brilliant pictures uh, from Hubble or from Spitzer or uh, other telescopes, you know, you're looking at something that's actually by and large a vacuum that's better than anything that we make in a lab on earth you know uh, you know every every cubic centimeter okay maybe it has two or three atoms in it uh-huh. to astronomers that's a really dense nebula right right <laughs> to us that's like mm. you know pretty much a perfect volume but it's a question of distance right um like like uh, I was thinking like think about a like a smoke cloud. You think of a smoke cloud as something that's kind of hard to see through. It's kind of opaque. Yeah, and that's because you know when light goes through it, at some point or another, it runs into a, uh-huh. hitting Sorry. things. Runs uh, into a microphone. Yeah, that's yeah. It's hard. It's hard to talk science without waving your hands all over the place. <laughs> it's it's a danger of the profession. Oh, we know. Yeah, but. You know, the reason that something was opaque is because, you know, particle, uh, a photon light will go and hit something before it gets through the other side. So if you imagine, if you take that smoke cloud on Earth and now you expand it so it's like billions and billions of times larger, mm-hmm. if you start passing uh, 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 particles through it, but now it, it's, it's, it's much, much less dense because you've expanded out, right. but there's still much more of it because it's spanning light years. You know, it can actually, you can still have something that, that is opaque to light that looks very dense, mm-hmm. but it's still almost a vacuum because now you've got light years of distance to pass through instead of just, you know, uh, hundreds of feet. Yeah. So these nebulas in, in reality are, are super, super sparse. Okay. But it's because they're so large and there's so much thickness that that they glow and they're remarkable. And is the main, like, focus of a nebula to birth stars? That's their, like, purpose? That's Usually, a... I mean, to purpose, uh, to, to say they have a purpose is maybe mm-hmm. uh, anthropomorphizing the, the will of the universe a little much. What's, but... my, what's my purpose? <laughs> <laughs> 
to do great podcasts. Oh, and dig wow. deeply oh, into wow. science, specific, right? Uh, really, you think at a low bar. It is certainly, it is certainly an effective nebula. Uh, if you see a nebula, if when it, uh, if like Hubble is able to take a picture of a nebula, and it's going, it's usually because there are stars that have been born there uh-huh. that have lit up and are illuminating the denser regions of material that sort of came together to form them in the first place. I mean, the way all stars form is that. In that sort of empty space between stars, it's not really empty. There's gas, there's there's hydrogen, there's a little bit of carbon, there's there's uh, trace elements of other things. That's incredibly sparse, but it it it's turbulent. It's not smooth and uniform. And you run into basically traffic jams. Like uh, we're in LA, so think you know the 405, right? Mm-hmm. The uh, you have a bunch of cars that are normally flowing smoothly, but if one of them happens to slow down a little bit, it causes the car behind it to slow down, slow down. And so you do this. All of a sudden, now there's this region where the cars are all stacked up really close together. Then eventually, it can pass through and keep flowing. But you have this region where there's a lot of density of cars. It's not no one car necessarily stays there. It comes in and out. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what the galaxy is like. Gas kind of flows through and it hits these places where it all like bunches up and, and gets denser. Now, the, of course, following the analogy, like if two cars smash together, then more cars might smash and start piling up. And that causes even more of a pile up, right? Mm-hmm. Now, imagine if the more cars that smash together, they actually start like magnetically pulling in other cars and the more cars that smash even more get drawn in okay that's kind of what happens in interstellar space once you build this sort of traffic jam mm-hmm. gravity starts becoming more and more important because now as you build up more material it Gravity's has stronger. more of a gravitational pull on material and so it can actually start to get denser and denser and denser and this is like always happening in and a this nebula is, it's happening it's they're, 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 these nebulas are forming they're dissipating but occasionally one gets gets dense enough in regions where some of it it just keeps collapsing deeper and deeper and deeper and it at its core it forms a star okay. and then in the material around it there's material left over that it all kind of starts swirling around because there's always some turbulence and sure. unevenness. And, and as it swirls around, some of the material starts sort of spinning off to form a disk. And that leftover material becomes the material that can form planets. Wow. And so every nebula you see is a potential place where this process is happening. Little bits of it will break off and form planets and stars. And so that's kind of to, to connect it to Star Trek and, and Wrath of Khan, what's kind of both interesting and uh, right and wrong is like that Matora Nebula at that, when they get to it is just a nebula. But when the Genesis effect goes off, it actually like, it reprocesses all material in the nebula and turns it into a planet. Oh. And presumably a star too, because there wasn't a star there before. And there is at the end. So yeah, you know, but there's lots of material. And so it, 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 Star Trek away was showing sort of a process of star formation. And it's like they got the materials right, but the process was wrong. You know, mm-hmm. we don't need Genesis devices to do this. This is just part of that natural process. Right, right. But it was the idea of that Genesis device was actually kind of cool that it says, let's do a shortcut. You know, if we have mm-hmm. enough material, the Genesis effect, well, we'll just take all the material and take our a priori knowledge of how you build a planet and then just do a shortcut to it. Would it also in- need the, the, that was something I was wondering, like if it's like terraforming or whatever, like making a planet out of just a bunch of nothing or a bunch of uh, chemicals or something, atoms, do they also need a star that's like the perfect distance away? Absolutely. If you so, if you want it to be a, a life-bearing world, right. right, you need a source of heat and light, you know. Because I don't know if they explain, because to me they just, yeah, they did it in the middle of a, of a rock. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, so they talk, that's one thing that's kind of confusing in the movie. They show this planet forming and mm-hmm. at the very end there's a sunrise. I'm like, where did the star Where'd come the sun? from? Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was wondering, uh, I, too. I remember when I saw the movie, I actually read the novel after I saw it. I think the writer might have been Vonda McIntyre, uh, who actually 
went and tried to retcon all the little holes in it. And uh, in the novel, they make the comment there was so much material in that nebula. It had material not just to build a planet, but also a star. Uh-huh. And it built a star of the right type, and it built a planet right of the right distance. What a right. that great device Genesis is. This just <laughs> you know. But the, but the thing is, in principle, <laughs> in principle, it kind of makes sense. The in in the movie, they were saying they were packing in all this data into the Genesis device. You know, presumably they were giving it sure. all of the the formulas it needed. Uh, the, for uh, they said that eventually it would be to build planets, not just so to reform just a planet. Like a single like you could do that four or five times, and it's constantly a planet. It's like they were we're working towards this. Planet. Right, right. You yeah, know, they yeah. they were clearly they wanted to plug in all the information that we knew that would make something habitable. You know, that so they would put mm. in like you know DNA patterns for for life forms and things right, like right, that. Right, And then you know, and it was just like uh, you know, it, it, it was it was the template. Like here are the mm-hmm. instructions. Now all you need is the materials, and if you have the materials, build it following, you know, everything that we've learned about how stars work, how planets work, yeah. and then uh, then reassemble it into something that would be life-bearing. Very and as an quickly. idea, that's really cool. Yeah. Also scary as hell. <laughs> yeah. Both. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, we're, we're running out of time here. I, I have so much more I wanted to get to. Unfortunately, we'll have to do some sort of Star Trek 2 episode 2, <laughs> I guess. Uh, there was this line, the revenge is a dish that is best served cold, and it's very cold in space, that Khan says, that just uh, destroyed me. I thought it was hilarious, mm-hmm. and I had to mention something <laughs> about it. Um, I had a whole bunch of crap on rigor mortis because he says, like, oh, it's it, they, the bodies must be uh, killed recently because rigor mortis hasn't set in. So I had research on that. Uh, it starts uh. between two and six hours following death, and I have a bunch of really fucked up details I'm not going to get into. Uh-huh. Uh, there's that weird crazy bug that goes into their ear and was like Mm -hmm. a really scary part of the movie that I did not see coming. Very suspenseful there. Uh, So if you think you have something in your ear, uh, the Mayo Clinic recommends you use mineral oil, olive oil, or baby oil to try and float the critter out. Okay, not to have your like partner commit suicide, and that yeah. kind of is a, a big crazy event, and it'll just kind of go out that way. Yeah. Start with the mineral oil. Okay, start with that. Yeah, yep. it's not most bugs, most most uh-huh. cockroaches that are in your ear aren't going to care about your friend okay. killing themselves. Okay, and what if we've already done that? What? If... <laughs> uh, it should have come out. Okay. I don't know. All right, great. Um, and then uh, either way, go see a doctor, of course. And uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Is there anything else you want to ask? I've got is some there... notes here. Let's see. Oh, great, perfect. <laughs> There uh, was a, a Spock said sauce for the goose at some point. Do you know what that was about? Was that a Star oh, yeah. Trek reference? What the hell was that? And he just wanted I, a saucy goose. That's all he was after. <laughs> I get it. You know, I've always wondered what that meant. <laughs> okay. <laughs> just curious. Had to ask. Um, okay. I have a question. Why does Kirk's son look like the douchebag from a private school who's going to challenge me to a ski race <laughs> to save the rec center? Yeah. That's they so put, true. They put a sweater over his shoulders, which I was like, this is so different from every other bit of fashion. <laughs> so true. And they focus on it. Yeah. There's like a part where it's like a clear shot of the yeah. sweater. You know, I, I, I actually watched uh, one of the uh, new special features just last night oh. on this, and the director was, uh, Nicholas Myers was talking about that specifically. That you know he was trying to make these characters uh, break them out of the the sort of the the, the costumed future and try to communicate, you know, casual living, off-duty uh-huh. uniform, you know, the idea of, you know, the, the sweater around the, the preppy look, right, was yeah. he was trying to make the characters more visually relatable, like, you know, they're wearing a different kind of fashion, but this must be, you know, 
civilian life yeah. in the Star Trek universe, something that yeah. hadn't really been shown. Yeah, yacht fashion. Yeah. Yeah. But okay. it does look really preppy. Yes. I've got um, also, there's, okay, so there's a, <laughs> there's a scene when they undock. Okay. For early on, and they're pulling this massive spaceship out of its its dock. Oh yes. And they cut to one tiny astronaut outside <laughs> of like on the edge of this huge docking ship, like waving the ship out. <laughs> right. Which I was like, surely there is some machine that can do whatever he is uh, doing for him. Oh, I will. I will defend the scene. I All right. I, I would be that that the astronaut, <laughs> and he's not waving the ship out. He's, he is like, hey! He's okay. like the guy at dock. You know, when the cruise ship leaves, it's like, man, look at that. That's so cool. Okay. That makes and that more sense. Okay, yeah. I get it. That I thought, yeah, okay. yeah, I thought that, that was, was actually uh, That was actually one of the scenes from the first Star Trek movie that they actually reused to make this more efficient. They, they, re, they put every shot that was already done from Star Trek, the motion picture, that they could repurpose. So the whole Whoa. leaving space dock, that was all Doug Trumbull's work from the original movie. And then Industrial Light and Magic did all the new visual effects for Wrath of Khan. Uh-huh. And so that one of the things that they were trying to do in that first movie was really you know, add in some human-scale figures to really the show you the yeah, immensity yeah, of that right, ship. Right. Um, the other thing I have is their, I, I liked their fancy electric whistle when they come onto the ship. The woman blows into like a oh, box right. and it's like, it's a whistle, but it <laughs> sounds like a robot whistle. And I was like, cool, they updated the whistle. <laughs> yeah, um, that's nice. Then Space boson whistles. It's, yeah. it's the thing. Yep. <laughs> uh, and then, um, oh, and then just something I thought I was like, I don't know that this should be protocol is when, after they've been hit towards the end, Scotty appears in the command deck carrying a dead body. They're like, we've got to check on things. And Scotty's like, well, someone has died. And here they are. Yeah, I check present this out. them to you. Which I assume, I don't know that they connected this, but I kind of assume that that was maybe the young kid he's talked to yeah. right at the beginning. In, in the director's cut, they established that that kid is his nephew. Oh. Uh, there there were some there extra we scenes they, they did to establish that. I would totally that. carry my nephew yeah. to every room of that ship. Yes. I, I, th- I think in the novel they retconned that by saying that he was trying to go to sickbay, but because of all the damage, the turbo lifts were screwed up, and he ended up on the bridge Oh my god, I can't believe they dealt with it. That's that's incredible. Well, you know, a good novelist will go yeah, and yeah. find all of these things and go, okay, now why how could you possibly justify this really silly thing? It's right, like, right. Yeah. I'm gonna show it to Kirk rather than actually take him to McCoy, who might actually save his life. Oh, right. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like that's a perfect job for you, actually. Like, Because you really seem to get a kick out of, like, but this doesn't make sense. How do I explain it? Oh, yeah. I would on it. Yeah, that would be fun. So, I thought you meant a perfect job for me would be carrying dead bodies. <laughs> carrying your uh, nephew. And show them to whoever it's most emotionally relevant at the moment. <laughs> no, no. I think okay. you're just a good story no, to tell. be like, I have weak legs, so that won't, that's not going to do. <laughs> and any good Star Trek fan has, has you know, years of experience retconning yeah. uh, uh, <laughs> things like, okay, how can we explain the backstory to make something make sense that clearly doesn't yeah. make sense. Yeah, how can we explain sauce for the goose? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't sauce know. Sauce for the goose. It, well, yeah, he's saying that because it was like an even playing field, or he goes on to say. Oh, okay. It's it, But he's like, it's sauce for the goose. Oh, yeah, because they, they can't bring the shields down, and he's like, 
sauce for the goose <laughs> evens the playing field. We got to find other ways I don't to know say what that. Yeah. Talking about though, <laughs> I, I can't help you on that one. That is beyond my educational background. Uh, okay, real quick, I wanted to also mention that. In 1982, it was like a golden year for sci-fi. There was, was. Blade Runner, there was E.T., there was Tron, there was Whoa. The Thing, and of course this movie, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Mm. So yeah. I thought that was really cool, and I did not know about that. Um, and I, then, I remember that year vividly. It was it was, uh, it was was the year that I thought would never be repeated until, of course, now we're in like max sci-fi, and that's like every summer. But Yeah, yeah. <laughs> only they were much better movies. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and it was just the only – I feel like now there's so much media in general that you yeah. can find whatever you're into, and there'll be new stuff. Yeah. But back then, it was just whatever's in the theater, that's what we're going to go see, or whatever's on TV. And so it was like, well, Star Trek like the only space show and then in the movies it wasn't that common until I don't know I, from what I was reading 1982 was like this huge sci-fi wave came in which I thought was great and when was this in relation to Star Wars I'll like, let Robert take that one. yeah that was mm-hmm. um, you know it was after the original Star Wars and I think was it I don't it was Right, it was either right before, or right after uh, Empire Strikes Back. I think it might have been right after. That's Empire. so interesting because Empire was, you know, to also a much darker tone. So I wonder, mm. I would wonder if like the two movies had any influence on each other. There, like, I know that they the the title of this had to change a few times because it was similar to Revenge of the Jedi. That's right. Yes, it was before. Yes, it came out before the third. That's exactly it. Yeah, because right. it was originally going to be the Vengeance of Khan. Right. And mm. but then the, it was leaked that it was going to be Revenge of the Jedi. Yes. And so they changed Vengeance of Khan to Wrath of Khan. Yes. But then they also changed Vengeance of the Jedi to Return of the Jedi. So <laughs> they could have stayed with Vengeance yeah. if they wanted. Really should have been the chest of Khan. <laughs> Holy crap, that guy was... It was uh, impressive. That was an impressive Yeah, that chest. was a, uh, a crazily displayed chest. <laughs> yeah, like, he was proud. It's like the most cleavage I've seen on a man. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. Uh, there must be an award for that somewhere. Okay, is there anything uh, you'd like to plug promote something people where, where can people find you nick uh they can find me on uh, i guess twitter and instagram at nick coacher right. uh, uh plug and promote i don't i mean nothing i can talk about now that maybe in two years okay. these things will <laughs> come to fruition we'll see okay great well we'll have you back on yeah, to yeah, promote great. these secret projects yeah we'll, we'll examine the science in those yeah uh, uh robert yeah, uh, actually, one thing I'd love to uh, plug is in the uh, interest of doing good science, mm-hmm. uh, one of our projects at work is to uh, create uh, videos that sort of explain science in kind of fun ways. And a project I had the uh, pleasure of, uh, of being able to uh, helm this time uh, was something called uh, the Habitable Zone. It's uh, We actually worked with a couple cast members from the series The Expanse, uh, which is actually uh, a series that's actually going to be on Amazon Prime now. Uh, picked up from sci-fi cool. uh, that uh, we're working with uh, Cass Anvar and Kara G from The Expanse to do a little sci-fi uh, short series where they play uh, astronauts who are jumping around from one star system to another looking for a world that could be habitable by humans. Wow. And mm-hmm. um, and you know the, the idea is you know in each episode they'll find a planet but it will never quite be right and it gives us a chance to really dig into the science behind exoplanets and all the things that lead to habitability. And it's, in a way it's kind of a reaction to all the sci-fi where every time they find a planet it's always breathable and, mm-hmm. you know, right, it, right. it's always so easy yeah and you know the science really shows us it's it's 
humans are dependent on such a very specific set of uh, conditions mm-hmm. that that it's very hard to find something with all the things lined up. So yeah, uh, but yeah, if you uh, go to um, um, our our site for our video series in general at universeunplugged.org, okay, you find it there, or uh, just search for that on YouTube, or uh, search for Habitable Zone on YouTube, and you should be able to find our show. So we got one episode out now. We're in post production on the second one, and uh, we're actually open to produce some more over the summer and, and, and fill that out. Okay, fantastic. Otherwise, I guess I, I am technically on on uh, Twitter at uh, at Astro Rob, but you know if you follow me, maybe you'll see my once every year post. So <laughs> <laughs> look out for those annual posts. Oh man, yeah, they are they're they're killer posts when they go. Great, and check out universeunplugged.org, yeah. Universe Habitable Zone. Uh, that sounds really cool, and it sounds like Earth. Uh, maybe we should take care of it because it's yeah, a yeah. unique set of circumstances. Yeah, yeah, we, we got some more videos too. We got we worked with like Will Wheaton from Star Trek and uh, Jerrica Hinton from Grey's Anatomy, and uh, for uh, uh, let's see who else. we even have one video with um, the voice of the GLaDOS robot uh, AI from the Portal video game uh, oh. singing a musical about the electromagnetic spectrum so Whoa. that's all, all those are all videos up at universeunplugged.org so. great that Very sounds cool. really cool um, alright thank you guys so much had cool. a good time see you next time thanks all right. of course bye Bad Science is hosted and produced by me, Ethan Edinburgh. Our social media producers are Kate Baker and EJ Gullett. And the Enterprise producer is Brett Kushner. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Bad Science Show for more behind-the-scenes content. And send us an email, badscienceatseeker.com. I try to respond to all the emails. And I really appreciate you guys reaching out and telling me how much you enjoy the show and any ideas for other movies you have. And uh, please give us a review on iTunes. That helps people learn about the show, spreads the word, spreads the gospel. Anyways, see you next week where we will be talking about American Psycho. Bye.